Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. My name is Ben Pronk. And my name is Tim Curtis. And this is our opportunity to get our own back. Mm -hmm. We recently um, featured as guests on the Dad to Me podcast, and we are now turning the microphones at the hosts of that podcast, Jump Daddy and Dr. Tom. That's right. Their podcast, the Dad to Me podcast, is a series that poses questions that grown children have always wanted to ask their own dads have somehow felt that's too awkward or peculiar to ask. And so really on their show, they offer this translation service. Growing up children give them the questions and then they interview the fathers and ask those awkward questions so that children can find a little bit about their fathers and probably the reverse is also true. Having said all that, they did nothing of the sort in our episode. They just <laughs> peppered us with a barrage of, of awkward questions. No, it was awesome. I really enjoyed being on their show, mm. and I'm really looking forward to having them on ours because my understanding is no one's actually done this before. No one's turned the tables on them and asked them a bit about their backstory, what got them so interested in this concept of fatherhood, and um, what they've learnt from their their podcasts. Yeah, that's that's right. They're in season one and, and no one has asked what's motivated them to do this quite unique podcast. You've got a you know professor of Latin and an entertainer. Um, we're going to explore that. The why and uh, what are they taking from this podcast where they're interviewing fathers and their children and reconnecting them. Yeah, and we're going to find out what's next for them in, in terms of their podcast journey. Uh, as they take Dad to me from Australia to the world. Carpe diem. Let's get on with the show. Gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. My name is Ben Pronk. And my name is Tim Curtis. And we are both fathers. Mm -hmm. which is a central theme to what we're going to be speaking about today because we are joined by the crew from Dad, Dad to, to Me. Dad to Me podcast. Dr. Tom and Jump Daddy, welcome to the show. Hello, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Now, we've turned the microphones around because you had a go at us and now we get a go at you. And uh, I love the theme of the Dad to Me podcast. So you claim that you interview the world's hottest fathers, which we know is true <laughs> Because <laughs> now that you've interviewed us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. the, the exception that proves the rule. Yeah. And uh, for anyone that hasn't checked out the Dad to Me podcast, do that. Um, the boys take questions essentially from uh, children and then act as a translation service for fathers and talk about all ports in between specific to dads. But I want to get onto the on-ramp with discussing how the two of you met. Let's start there. This 
is a can of worms. You've already opened it. <laughs> uh, so we're we're old friends from school, actually. So we we met in high school. In fact, in Latin class, mm-hmm. uh, some of us continued to do Latin uh, inadvisedly for about twenty years. After mm-hmm. uh, jumped daddy quit Latin. Uh, at the right time, um, yeah, we 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 hung out in Latin class, and then we did a kind of series of projects at school. I, I, together. I take it this was in between <laughs> fending off all the ladies. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, he. They joke, but... (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Tom is a master of the modern day uh, world of apps. Let's just (laughs) leave that there and leave it there. No, we were were incredibly nerdy teenagers and we were were spending a lot of time doing Latin, a lot of time doing sort of various comic stunts. Um, There was, yeah, there there weren't that many uh, romantic distractions at that point. Yeah, it it was also a, a... a, a selective boys' school. Yeah, so, uh, enough, enough said. Any yeah, type yeah. of coupling was way down the list of priorities compared to next Tuesday's maths exam, which was <laughs> central in terms of our conversational gambits uh, <laughs> uh, during recess. But yeah, and then after uh, after high school, uh, Tom and I, we were co-presidents, founding co-presidents of Handsock, Sydney University's one and still only handball-focused. Uh, society. We really? when I say handball, not European, not European handball. handball. No, no yeah. that game, aka Foursquare, that most kids give up oh, immediately yes, yeah. after they graduate from primary school. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> but we managed to use that as a vehicle to get onto SRC of Sydney Uni. So the you know, we're representative council exactly. And so we're in the middle of like genuine, you know, student <laughs> politicians, some who are now literally in state and federal parliament. Mm. Uh, we were there fighting tooth and nail for or greater awareness, public education campaigns about handball on university campus. And then we, that we, proceeded. I was going to ask, were you pushing for its inclusion and sort of university games? Was it well, this kind yeah, of... Yeah, what, what, we, what we did with handball was actually we, we treated, treated it as a big sort of metaphor for life and, and politics. So we sort of extracted these, uh, these lessons from it. Sure we did. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did. Basically, like, you know, it was, it was half joke, half serious, like everything uh, Jump Daddy and I do. It, it yeah. was, you know, it did sort of have a, a, a ser- some of a serious edge. But mainly we just wanted to like, you know, try and intervene in what is quite a sort of self-important world of student politics Um, Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, on campus at that time and and at all times basically like you do just have the Labour Liberal column of like future functionaries that are just like in training and, and, you know, it was nice to kind of get in there and disrupt stuff a little bit. Maybe I'm I'm making it sound really kind of like... (laughs) Like yeah. a big no, important intervention, yeah, no, but yeah, <laughs> handball was just the vector for disruption. Exactly. That's exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. Before we well even put. knew what that phrase disruption, we were we were well ahead of our time. If yeah. only we'd monetized it somehow. I'm sure there <laughs> yeah. would have been a way to turn those. Look, votes. we try to monetize everything, but nothing seems to work out. <laughs> <laughs> before we before we leave handball, have you stayed current? Um, my kids are playing it, and I grew oh. up in Queensland, and it was old school rules. Well, They've got all these sorts of variations on sort of rolls and grabs and double hands and uh, all these sort of new rules. We would be so fascinated to when we set up the yeah. competing handball podcast. We're, they're going to be some of our first guests. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm, an absolute, I'm an absolute purist, though. I prefer, you know, yeah, the just you miss a point, you're out. Yeah, you know, grabs. Mm. 
doesn't exist, you're no. out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. Getting Lions doesn't exist, you're out. Like, just keep it really simple. Keep the turnover quick. Uh, and with and you, you always school. have a, a, a great time. Old school with Queensland a, rules. With a, do you have the Darwinian approach to handball? Is there a hierarchy of squares, you know, that you make your way up to be the king? Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dunce, Jack, uh, Queen, King in, in a classic four-square environment. But we introduced, uh, we're getting quite deep in the handball. I'll, I'll just give you one, <laughs> give you one, just one example of a rule that we introduced. We, we had a rule called, called Karl Marx. So if the... If the Either the jack or the dunce, i.e. the working class the proletariat, proletariat or, the, yeah. or the petty bourgeoisie, uh, <laughs> they um, call that. Then they're in an alliance against the queen and the king. You know, the, Ooh, the high you bourgeoisie. You can have a revolution. That, uh, exactly. So you mm. can actually, as a twosome, you can like get promoted to the, the top two spots. That was one of the many, you know, twists that we... we uh, yeah. I'll tell you what, only at Sydney University would you get <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Karl Marx clause on handball court. Communist handball. <laughs> <laughs> now I've seen everything. <laughs> can, can we leave handball? Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so um, off the handball court and then into your respective professional lives. Jump Daddy, what are you up to at the moment? Well, currently I am working uh, on behalf of a major nation within the Commonwealth of Nations mm. uh, that will go unnamed for the moment uh, <laughs> because of various contractual uh, intricacies. But basically I'm doing propaganda on their behalf. I wish I was joking about that, but uh, it could well be that one of your children comes back from school one of these days. Uh, all of a sudden very much infatuated with a large North American country in which English and French are the two <laughs> languages, I can say no more. And, Mexico. and how, <laughs> how are you delivering propaganda? What are you doing yeah, inside? Yeah, well, basically in my other life, I, I, I work in schools as a sort of a comedian come entertainer. So delivering shows and workshops with, uh, with a comic edge, mm -hmm. uh, but often on some pretty dry, fundamentally dry topics like financial literacy uh, or why the country that they call the Great White North is, is a wonderful place to be. Mm. And do I remember <laughs> correctly that you have been involved in some professional sporting competitions to draw awareness to those competitions? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I uh, was the entertainer that accompanied the Queen's Batten uh, ahead of the 2018 Gold Coast game. So that is a sentence that could be interpreted interpreted in myriad. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> but look, uh, I'll give you my version of it. Um, the for those of you who don't know, the Commonwealth Games, uh, which you know, those of us on this podcast uh, all grew up with, uh, you know, uh, but increasingly kids these days just have no idea what it is. So very mm. simply, it's uh, kind of a version of the Olympics, but for countries which were once part or uh, connected to the British Empire, or not in the case of Mozambique and Rwanda, who just decided to join this thing called the Commonwealth, because why not? Opt in. Uh, it's, it sounds good, doesn't yeah, it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it was in the Gold Coast in 2018, and like the Olympics, uh, they have something akin to the Olympic torch, which gets taken around the world and then tours around the host country, but it is the Commonwealth, so it's kind of a cut 
overpriced version. <laughs> so there's no flame. It is a stick. It's a baton. <laughs> and it goes from town to town before descending upon the host city, which is in that case the Gold Coast. But the number of times the marketing manager would be quietly going apoplectic, the Commonwealth Games marketing manager would be quietly going apoplectic as a local politician or a federal senator Let's welcome the Commonwealth Games flame into Adelaide. And it's just a definitely not ignited stick down the road. Dude with a big lighter next to the stick. Yeah, yeah. And, and how were you presented inside this? Were you in costume, in character? Uh, yes. Uh, I was in head-to-toe spandex. Um, initially, I didn't have the uh, sensible accoutrement of a pair of shorts over the spandex, and I simply wore a cricketer's cup. Um, <laughs> so you definitely did notice when the VIPs, like you know, the head of the Commonwealth Games, Peter Beatty, had to come up and shake my hand. Hey, mm. Peter, my eyes, my face, my person, <laughs> yeah, not down there. I'm up here. I love yeah. you, Peter. <laughs> So I would kind of introduce the event uh, and, you know, cap off the event and sort of be an MC, be an entertainer. Again, entertaining, but also really educating people about what on earth was happening today in the lead up of the games because this big circus would roll into town for one day and one day only. A lot of people would turn up and a lot of people have absolutely no idea what was going on. And that probably became doubly so when they saw what I was wearing. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love this idea of a dead tradition though that like requires an on-site spandex commentator to like... <laughs> Explain what the hell is going on. That's right. I still so the spandex sounds like it was your idea. I, I see nothing <laughs> in what you've yeah, described right. that'd require you to wear spandex. <laughs> yeah, jump yeah, yeah. Well, I can tell you if 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 listeners are having trouble picturing it, I actually got a costume maker who specialises in creating dance leotards for your suburban dancers, Stedfords, um, to replicate Kathy Freeman's. Sydney 2000 oh, wow. head to toe spacesuit. So that might mm. give you a little bit of, of a sense. And indeed, for a, a spacesuit that is cut for a petite young woman on an increasingly middle aged man, uh, there are definitely some difficulties to be surmounted every time I uh, pull on. <laughs> The enclosure. <laughs> and, and Dr. Tom, you didn't you didn't leave Latin at high school. What have you gone on to do? Exactly. So you know, here over here, Jump Daddy is uh, getting into all sorts of spandex uh, <laughs> situations. But yeah, I I actually continued doing the same thing. So I did a lot, whole lot more Latin and Greek at university. Um, studied that as an undergraduate in Sydney. And then after that, I decided, look, if I want to keep doing this, if I want to keep doing what I'm doing, Australia is not really the place for it. You can imagine that Latin is, uh, is, is not top priority at your average Australian university. So uh, you, you went to a country that speaks Latin? I went to a country that speaks Latin, exactly. <laughs> the Vatican for me. <laughs> yeah, the Vatican well, you, and only you talked the Vatican. Well, you talked about the dead culture uh, with mm, relation to the, yeah, to yeah. the stick. Wikipedia yeah. describes Latin as no, don't quote, do this. Don't a say dead it. language. <laughs> unquote. Is that like a dagger to the professor's heart? I actually have quite strong views about this, and they may not be the views you expect. Here we go. I I'm happy with Latin being a dead language. In fact, I think that this is uh, precisely the potential of studying it. Because you can never get to a level of fluency that you can uh, when you're speaking a modern European language or in any other modern language. It's never so it it makes 
you know, and when you're speaking those languages, language becomes a bit sort of transparent. You just sort of like get it immediately, right? Whereas with Latin, because it's dead, your understanding is a bit clunky. When you're reading it, you sort of pour over every word. Mm. It almost forces you mm. to slow down and really kind of uh, absorb and, and study the mm. literature. Um, and so that's, you know, I, I think it should remain dead and I'm happy to say that I study a dead language. Mm. I'm, I'm going to test you out. I, I did Latin until year 12 and in all mm. seriousness find it incredibly useful in terms of um, the derivation of modern English words and I love seeing the crossover into mm. the little bit of French and, and Spanish that I've done. But we used to call our teacher, and this mm-hmm. is very sort of pig Latin, mm-hmm. ubi lupus. Can mm-hmm. you sort of pick together ubi Am I correct in saying that's where? Yeah, where wolf, and yeah. werewolf, and werewolf. this dude. <laughs> I said, <laughs> this. Do you see what we did there? But this yes. dude had a, a very full beard that just didn't seem to stop and sort of went all over his face. So, so we, yes. we made up this ubi lupus. Yeah, phrase. very good, yeah. ubi lupus. Yeah, where werewolf. I, I definitely see what you've done there, and uh, <laughs> I hope I hope that I can inspire such a nickname in my own students. <laughs> So guys, um, Dad to Me podcast, you're in your first season, you've interviewed cellist screenwriters, cancer researchers, architects, and the Colonel. What are you learning Colonel. from your podcast? Uh, what are the guests giving back to you as takeaways? Ooh, yeah, well, this is a big question. I mean, I think... We're learning broad stuff about people's relationships with their with their fathers, obviously, uh, and we're learning kind of, you know, like it, we're learning some sort of typical questions, I guess, that that people are asking. So that the format of the podcast, just very briefly, is that you um, that we uh, receive questions from these uh, from from children grown children that they've always wanted to ask their dad. And then with those children out of the room, we actually interview uh, the father and we sort of ask them those those very questions. Um, so we've had like a whole bunch of questions um, which, which sort of like some are about like sort of clearing up bits of their dad's history that mm-hmm. they just don't know about, right? So we, we you know, one of our first ones was uh, – we interviewed this really weird uh, cellist, a Polish cellist, a uh, real sort of kind of Central European genius maestro figure, very eccentric. Uh, and one of his, you know, one of his son's questions was, how did you get out of being recruited by the Polish Secret Service, you know, under Polish state socialism? <laughs> mm. Okay, so, you know, there are bits and pieces like that. There are There are also like, but you know, sometimes it gets. Um, we get into the territory of uh, the family tension, right? So another example would be like, you know, uh, a, a, another participant asked us to ask their dad, "How close were you and were you and my mum coming to divorce?" Um, you know, when I when I was growing up, and and so like you know, we've we've just got, yeah, I guess. 
I think what what has been universal though mm. uh, from you know obviously not everyone is like listening to to episode one yeah it's like hey yeah maybe my dad was also in the polish secret <laughs> service so i really <laughs> should ask him that like there, there are a lot of very specific questions to specific circumstances of course some very some funny some really deep and uh, potentially painful and, and and others just 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 very specific something that is consistent though that comes through is that people particularly adult kids so often get stuck in this conversational furrow with their dad that they've just never really broken out of since they were a teenager. Um, and so it's just the adult update of how was school? Mm. Good. Mm. See you at dinner. Fine. Um, that's just updated to the logistics of them now both being an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the really satisfying things that comes in the podcast and, and then particularly even after the recording when we check back in with everyone is hearing that for the first time in not just a month or this year but literally decades they've had a conversation with their father where they were genuinely asking questions and genuinely interested in the answers Mm. as opposed to doing the complete opposite which so often uh, characterizes adult child particularly grown child relations Mm. It is funny that point where you transition from thinking of your dad as your dad and all the baggage that's associated with that, quite rightly, to thinking of them as a human being. And, you know, it, it's we, we spoke, um, in fact, we'll encourage our listeners to tune into your episode with us where we did speak about some of those sort of connections and, and recognising mortality and all that sort of stuff. But it's kind of weird thinking of your dad as... A, a human, uh, that mm. sounded wrong, mm. but you know, <laughs> yeah. like distinct but. from from being just his role as your father. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and also and also understanding that they didn't have it as worked out as we thought they did. They didn't have mm. all the solutions. Mm. Doesn't matter mm. what age, you're still kind of muddling it through. And particularly when it comes to parenting. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that moment where you where you sort of like flip out of that um, that relationship of you know father child and you start thinking of your dad as a human being you start thinking of them as a broader uh entity you know that like it's amazing how that doesn't quite happen for a lot of people Mm. as well like Mm. it's just some some people like have to break out of that quite late and and you know as as we keep saying like when you're when you're in that father child dynamic there's a kind of rhythm and the rhythm is that the father is sort of interested in the child but not the other Mm. way around often uh and so like now i think we're at this you know especially people our age we're at this kind of reflective millennial moment where we're like oh god i need to see where i've come from you know and like (laughs) and you you know you want you actually do want to flip the lens back back on your parents and and when you do do that it's amazing the stuff that comes out and a lot of it's really practical because Mm. You know, as one of our guests said, she'd never uh, sort of just conceived of her dad as a living entity before she was born, and she's now she's now in her thirties, and that's you know something that was echoed in in, in various mm. ways uh, mm. uh, by other guests. But again, for her and for so many others, to hear about her dad at her age was so useful because again, mm. no longer this sort of mysterious, got it all together or distant mm. or even boring parental figure, but simply a human being navigating being in your mid thirties, uh, 
can just be of real practical use. Like, wow, my dad and my mum faced this age before mm. and they actually might know some things that I'm going through and indeed be able to, mm. <laughs> I could reflect on their stories mm. if I bothered to ask about them on, 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 on how to take the next steps in my own life. I guess though with that practical sort of access to knowledge, you also sacrifice some of that magic and, and maybe mm. some of the reason why people don't want to burst that bubble is is because mm. exactly what Tim said, you know, your, your parents are just these, in some cases, in hopefully in lots of cases, these wonderful figures that, you know, were always there and, and sort of had it all squared away and to, to actually prick that bubble and, and realise, mm. no, they were they were flawed and they had their issues and, and all that sort of stuff can, yeah. can be killing Yeah, I'm thinking the, more and more about mm. that as we sort of unpack what we've been doing here. And I, I guess the, the, the notion that's coming to me is that question of an inflection point. Like, you don't want to be burdening your kids, uh, you know, age three, hey, little Timmy, <laughs> I've had a really tough day today and, you know, the PTSD is acting up again, I'm getting mm. nightmares and I can't get any sleep. Um you want to protect your children and your family in general from that, particularly when they are in those younger years. So I guess the question is, and maybe this is a question for you guys because it's an inflection point that maybe you guys have hit or are starting to hit or it's in your future. When do you think it would be appropriate to share more of your past with your kids, uh, particularly as they do become adults and your own young adulthood uh, fades into the rear view and yet maybe would offer them a lot of practical advice by example? Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, the R-rated stuff when they reach the age of 18. Let me tell you how I met your mum. <laughs> I, think, I think there's also great value, and I'm not avoiding the question, but I'm just going to answer it in a slightly different way. I, I think that there's also great value that they hear a father's story through the mouths of his friends and colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, there's a certain truism in that. Um, you know, we have a very one-dimensional view of what we did and how we did it. Um, so mm. I think that sense of community where, yeah, sure, you're, you're there with your son or daughter, but with mm. others um, telling a little bit of that, a little bit of the story. Mm. And, you know, there's the, this principle of, for boys, um, this wild spirit of a man adventure where fathers, plural, and sons, plural, go away and, and have these experiences. And that is a platform for those types of conversations. Mm. I mean, probably personally, I'm happy to have the conversations with my kids whenever they're ready. Um, mm. They really provide the tripwire for what they want to know and what they want to discuss and um, there's a bit of osmosis in the way that you get messages through and sometimes the time just isn't right for them they're not that interested they've got other priorities in their little lives mm. what do you think Ben? I, I think that there's certain I, I actually think the dynamics change and it changes every generation and so I don't know that there's direct sort of exact lessons from our childhood that um, you can you can just lift and slap into contemporary, uh, you know, teenage years mm. because the dynamic has changed so much. Mm. Um, however, I do think there is that empathy, that constant or the universal aspect where you're, you're finding your way in the world, you're finding what it means to be an adult. And I think that element of, of being able to understand that it's tough rather than the literal lessons mm. of this is mm. exactly what you should do. And, mm. I mean, for me, I, uh, I think the internet is massive it's certainly unprecedented in terms of the influence it's having on kids 
Um, mm. And I'm, I'm actually really bullish on it for, for all the sort of fear about social media and what it can do and cyberbullying and all that sort of stuff. The level of sophistication and worldliness and the access to information that my kids have um, mm. is something I didn't have even at university. And I think it's just amazing. It's frustrating from the, the classic dad, you know, they fact check me. Mm. So my dad knew everything, <laughs> often wrong, never in doubt. And, you know, he was just this oracle. It's like that Telstra ad, you know, why'd they build the Great Wall and keep <laughs> the rabbits out? He'd come up with this sort of shit. And we'd just think, oh, he's, he's genius. Whereas my kids are straight on to fact checking me. And, you know, That's no, incredible. it wasn't the 16th century. It was the 17th century that <laughs> Botticelli. And it's like, well, Fuck you! Give me something. <laughs> <laughs> so, but this this is a positive thing. They they know how to gain information, um, and I, I think this is I reckon a real opportunity for us. And to answer your original question, I think it brings forward that inflection point. I think they are getting exposed to this stuff mm. a lot earlier. That that fairy tale of the omniscient sort of got it together dad is is probably uh, not as enduring as it used to be. And hang mm. on, we're supposed to be asking the questions yeah. of you two as well. Um, this is fascinating. Let's take this dynamic. So I'm, I'm curious, maybe in your own lives with your own fathers, you know, the Dad to Me podcast and, and, and you guys doing it, does in many ways seem a bit odd, and let's come to that in a little while. But why are you doing this podcast? I and mean, what was your motivation to start the Dad to Me podcast? Yeah, well, probably slightly different motivations, but, you know, I'll speak to my own. Um, for me, it was kind of, you know, it was part of my struggles with, with my own father, I think, and w mm -hmm. with my relationship with him. Um, my dad is a textbook kind of quite silent type, but, like, that's not to say that he's kind of shtum about everything and, you know, very gruff or whatever. He's got, actually got quite a, like, light, funny, laughy character but when you kind of press him on some deep questions and on his past, he like really just gives you one word answers. And it was, you know, it, it, I just found it impossible to, to crack him open. So I guess I was thinking about like, you know, some kind of strategy, some kind of medium, some kind of trick to, to mm. open him up. Um, and that's, you know, that's where the idea was, was kind of born for me um, and jumped out of you probably have a slightly different experience right yeah well uh perhaps a little like you ben my my own father passed away uh a few years ago and while i always held him up as something of a hero of mine and and, and there's a lot of uh crossover in our personality particularly sort of the performative aspect uh he was also a man that that had many struggles and 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 many disappointments and i th and and for me i think that you know clouded a lot of that relationship and my own sense of self uh to the point which i don't know I, I i i always thought that while there were never any particular burning questions that i didn't get to ask my father i at the same time after he passed away thought it would have been great to just have some more substantive conversations getting beyond what's in the headline of the current newspapers and and getting to the deeper stuff which was as effusive and performative as he was as a man, it was it was quite often quite often on the surface, at least within his own family's conversational ambits. 
What do you wish you had have asked him or what do you wish you had have known? I think for me, and maybe uh, we, I've touched on this a couple of times just in, in terms of uh, my, uh, my questioning of you guys, is that knowing how kind of similar we are and knowing the kind of struggles that I've had personal and professional with the kind of vocation that I have as, as a performer, as a constantly bullshitting loudmouth, um, to get a sense of what my, my dad's own sort of struggles and uh, with that were at, at the same mm. age. And I never got a sense of that necessarily from him. Particularly, he was a, he was an older dad um, uh, compared to, to 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 most people. He had me at age forty five, mm. um, so his youth was truly a foreign country to me, to my sister, who's who's even younger than me, and something that I, I guess I would have I would have just loved to have have, have learnt more about in order to to maybe find a little bit of myself a little sooner. Yeah, I, I think just to bring that back to the theme and the question you asked us before, like what, what have we learned, what has emerged from this? Uh, I think one thing I've learned is that older males have a real problem like framing vulnerability like mm. they, they don't sort of like the way that they tell stories is it never kind of reveals vulnerability or, or weakness and and i think jumped out of you were probably looking for a bit of that from your dad who was sort of the the consummate performer you know and and whatever vulnerability he did show was a very sort of performative vulnerability a very kind of um it had a comic effect, you know, mm. um, and uh, you know th this is something that I really want from my dad, like just a kind of reflection on struggle in his life. Like, you know, he's whenever I ask him about like I don't know previous relationships or whatever, he I don't know he can't sort of give me a very emotional account of it. He can't talk about the ups and downs for him. He can't like he can't say, you know, I was in pain then. Um, and that's like, I know that that must be there, you know, uh, and I, I really like, I've tried so many ways to kind of draw that out of him. Um, and yeah, I guess that's what, what partly what we were trying to do with this podcast to varying degrees of success, because, you know, the, the boomer, the boomer model of masculinity, it's, it's tough work. Mm. Isn't it funny, you know, we, we've written about vulnerability in our book, The Resilient mm. Shield, and it's it's a gateway. You show vulnerability, mm. you've opened the door for someone totally. else to show vulnerability to you, and that creates a social connection. It's, totally. uh, it's a really interesting thing that we do now that we know that our, our fathers and certainly our grandfathers would never have done that. And actually in some walks of walks of life, you know, the rural communities, the farmers, that they want to be that closed up shop. You know, they don't want to demonstrate vulnerability. And, and I think that the statistics are telling the story on, on that, that you bottle it up, you're going to have problems with your mm. mental health, you know, increasing your stress and anxiety and depression. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, it's... And I think there's a misperception which is 
I, I'm pleased to say, uh, slipping that that vulnerability equals weakness. Yeah. I mean, these yeah, are exactly. two very different mm. concepts. And the work we do in the leadership space is we make a real point of emphasising that that you know by showing vulnerability uh, doesn't necessarily indicate weakness. In in most cases, it it indicates the opposite. But for us, and maybe it's just our generation, or maybe it's our maleness, or whatever it is, often it feels like that they're the same thing. That we by showing vulnerability, we're showing potential chinks in our armour. Um, that's only the case if you're showing them to an enemy. And I think if we're, we're looking at our team or our loved ones, um, that shouldn't be the case. Mm. Mm. We had a wonderful, we just have run a leadership retreat. We had 63 on the retreat. A lot of them were under the age of 25 and uh, they're incredibly open. Uh, yeah. And it, it doesn't seem that long ago that we were 25 but we weren't using language that they were using. They they really are critiquing themselves quite hard and in many ways quite unfairly. But that said, the community of support around their that they get from their peer group is really powerful. And, you know, nearly to Ben's point, I, I think our concerns at the age of twenty five on showing vulnerability would be that we just wouldn't it wouldn't resonate with our peer group. You you, mm. you wouldn't get the attention back. Yeah, that's that's something we've found as well. I think there, there's a bit of a generational mismatch between yeah between languages. I guess you know we're like I guess millennials um, don't even aren't even as sophisticated as this new generation in their early twenties that are emerging. But you know we we have like a bit more of a um, more literacy, I guess, around psych- psychological issues and and emotions you know um and i think that's maybe the stumbling block that i always come up against with with my own father like i'm sort of almost pitching him questions that literally like don't make sense to him Mm -hmm. um and so over actually over time i've like with my own dad i've learned to like appreciate other forms of communication between us like for example my dad is like a very um, he's very into music and music kind of strikes this emotional chord within him such that if he hears, you know, like I'll be known as Adagio or whatever, like a certain classical track, he'll just like cry. And and that's like, you know, that, that's obviously like tapping a nerve that language can't really tap. And so, you know, I've, I've tried to like get more into that medium with him and, you know, maybe we can sort of inhabit that space together. Mm, it's fantastic. Funny you talk about music, and uh, you sort of alluded to that in a previous conversation. But uh, that was a big part of for my father and I as well. And mm. as a kid, we'd we'd tinker with cars and do stuff in the shed. This wonderful sort of bonding stuff. In hindsight, we'd always have the oldies station on four GR Toowoomba, great classic hits, <laughs> nice. and. I, I distinctly remember every time the Cats in the Cradle, that old Harry Chapin song came on, oh, he'd, wow. he'd stop what he's doing and turn it up. And it never, I never twigged, you know, I thought it, he just liked the song. But it was almost this touch point for him that he was actually being the father, the, the opposite to the father described in that song. He, he wanted to spend time with us. And it's only as an adult that I've, I've realised, because I, I always remember thinking, oh, your dad always used to stop for that song, and now it's like, oh, shit. Yeah, I, right. I get why. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are those lyrics again? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Amazing, amazing. And, and I think, look, one of the things we, we definitely, as we, we got into it, and, and certainly not our intention, is to at all pathologize these fathers in the way that they mm. go about conducting themselves. If anything... 
I came away with more respect for that generation, sort of our father's generation, the way that they took just things like creating a family in their stride, <laughs> uh, you know, just kind of getting on with things that younger generations have so many who do have so many feelings about it yeah, really good should expressing I their feelings I, about it yeah. but what about this and what about it? and it's like you know every uh, we we mentioned in our uh, 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 the uh, dad to me uh, inverse of this this episode I, I mentioned perhaps sort of slightly out of the blue there saying i think it's a zero sum game life you know some things get better but some <laughs> things get up. worse <laughs> yeah exactly and and i think this process has really kind of affirmed it for me in the sense that yes our generation of uh, dr tom and i definitely are more comfortable uh, ex expressing themselves and being welcome to the expression of it, particularly in male circles. At the same time, I look around that same friendship group and, you know, rates of uh, child having and home ownership considerably different to the same age age group uh, of, of our father's generation. And so I guess it, it depends where your priorities personally and generationally lie. Um, but... Yeah, it, it it was a contrast that kept coming up, and 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 as somebody who who still feels a lot of that sort of uh, fundamental life stages, I'm only just getting onto that ladder. Mm. I was really impressed to just hear of these dudes getting on with it. Yeah, <laughs> I get, what Jump Daddy is trying to say is he's become a shock jock who uh, criticizes <laughs> yeah. our generation for too many avo smashed avo toasties. Yeah, <laughs> I love the you know getting on with it. I, it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful line. Uh, Bill Tillman, the famous explorer, someone once once asked him, you know, oh Bill, how can I join your expedition? Sounds really exciting. You know, how can I get on the expedition? And Tillman just replied quite bluntly, "Pull on your boots and just go." <laughs> yeah, uh, I love right. that. Okay, so let's talk parenting and, and rearing a family, you becoming fathers, and 50% of you are. And one of the really beautiful <laughs> side stories of your podcast is this very factor. So I'll, I'll do the easy bit for first, Jump Daddy. Jump daddy. Children in your life? Uh, well, I work with them on a, a pretty much daily basis, which has proven to be a surprisingly powerful prophylactic measure. Um, <laughs> after you, after your, <laughs> uh, when your nine to five is built around, you know, entertaining and educating, you can imagine that uh, on the return home, you're looking forward to simply kicking up the feet and forgetting anything child related. So let, let's yeah. rule a line under that for the moment because I think there's okay. a more expansive story. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's do that. Let's go to Dr. Tom. Your story. <laughs> yeah, well, I do not have a child in my own care, but I have helped to sire a child. Uh, I'm a sperm donor to two friends. Uh, they're in a, a same-sex relationship. And uh, a couple of years back, maybe, you know, six, seven years ago, um, I heard that they were looking for, a, you know, for a sperm donor. Mm -hmm. Looking around a bit, couldn't quite find one that was sort of appropriate. They, I guess they wanted a known donor in their life. They didn't want an anonymous donation. They wanted this person as part of the whole setup. Uh, yeah, so I put my hand up 
and uh, yeah, that was um, yeah, that was the beginning of a very long process of like uh, you know tests and donations, but it led to uh, a very beautiful little girl called Teddy, who is now five years old, and uh, I saw her just the other night. Mm. And do I remember that one of the the girls used to be your partner? No, so that uh, yeah, let me clarify that. Mm. Definitely not. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, so uh, this. So basically, I I met uh, Georgia, one of the mums, uh, you know, the the carrier biological mum, uh, through an old mutual friend of ours who was a lover at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but you may, I don't know, what story do you, do we reckon this is? Oh, maybe, referring to? yeah, uh, uh, there may be the confusion because a, a former partner of yours Friend. did then later come out as a yes, lesbian. Yes, exactly. And your donation okay. was to exactly. a lesbian couple. Exactly. So that, yeah, and it was sort of interesting how those two things dovetailed at the same time in my life. So, you know, like uh, I had a, a five year long term partner who came out as as a lesbian uh you know and we broke up pretty much immediately um so i i guess i you know i was in i guess i've i've been uh directly involved in the lesbian world uh for better or worse in various ways it sounds for better can can you tell me a bit more about the screening process in my head i've got this sort of rocky four drago style you know they've hooked you up to machines and made you run on a treadmill and they're looking at the stats on a clipboard and giving you a battery of psychometric tests was it was it that thorough or was it catalog of sperm donors I wish it was that thorough. Yeah, they've obviously, you know, a lot fell through the cracks. Um, no, there was, there, you know, the testing was basically just blood tests for kind of, cra- you know, the more extreme uh, tropical like yeah. random diseases yeah. and, and HIV, that sort of thing. Um, so essentially know, they, they checked if you had a pulse and could, could jack off yeah, in a cup. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And that, uh, you know, I passed that test. We find <laughs> colours. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's also the crucial eyeball test. And it doesn't matter if you are a lesbian. It doesn't matter whatever your persuasion is. If you see Dr. Tom's calves in the wild, <laughs> you know that is an indication of strong genetic. You want that in your bloodline. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, look. Yeah, I like to think they're they're SAS grade calves. If I do say so myself. <laughs> we spend a whole week screening for calves on the selection course. So, you, you'd be... <laughs> in fact, nearly the opposite for ages. No one ever trained legs. You know, you ran and then you just did yeah, bench press. So yeah, most, right. most SAS blokes have got no calves. Calves <laughs> like a chicken's instep, as they say. <laughs> so, how was the experience of being a sperm donor? I'm assuming it wasn't very romantic <laughs> no the actual the the money shot moment is definitely not romantic i mean yeah you you basically just go into this really kind of desiccated futuristic clinic <laughs> and you you know you sit down you got some reading material um or some videos if you're into that mm-hmm. uh and then you know you just you just go to town i think you get like about half an hour to you know, before before the next person has to occupy the hotel room, uh, and then you, yeah, you um, hope that you can do it within that time, mm. and then you, yeah, you you do your business, and then you uh, go out and you hand it into like this kind of these really sort of um, futuristic staff um, <laughs> who are like again everything is very clean, like there's a there's a kind of like 
you know, everyone's wearing gloves and they, they have to sort of project this image of like full on purity, I think. Because they're like, cause, <laughs> I mean, I guess parent, potential parents are like, we do not want any other contamination, let's say, in this. The cockroach in this DNA match. in the, exactly. the mix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's, it's definitely very unromantic, but we, we kind of had fun with it. I think that's what that's advice I would give to any potential donor. It's like, just like lean into it and make. Go you dressed know. as a cowboy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm actually, yeah. So I'm, I'm actually like talking about donation for another very close friend as mm. we speak. Uh, and she actually wants to do the process differently. She doesn't want to go through a kind of official channel. She just wants to like meet a sort of, you know, come in a cup and then for her to do the turkey based method herself immediately mm. afterwards. Uh, and so in that case, we're going to, if this happens, we're going to actually make it into a bit of an event. You know, we're going to have, we're going to have a big dinner. We're going to invite all of our friends. Spectator sport. Spectator sport. Exactly. Mm. Do it before you eat, man. You don't want to be tired. <laughs> <laughs> Your guests want to eat before this yeah. happens, I imagine. <laughs> Just a couple of tequila shots and you're away. Oh. Yeah, tequila, bad for motility of sperm. Oh, okay. Interesting. Right. And so just a quick question then before we leave yeah. that and come back to the podcast. What role will you have in, um, you know, your biological child's upbringing? Yeah, well, you know, we've we've had sort of five years to to get used to it now. So we, you know, the the, the kind of definition that we have is more than an uncle, less than a dad. <laughs> so <Okay>. basically, <laughs> truly frightening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a bit lost in that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm it's a bit weirded out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sounds like something a creepy teacher would tell you. <laughs> it's good. It just kills the conversation. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay, I get it. Yep. Yeah, right. Okay, moving on. And, but what that, mean, what that means in yeah. practice for us is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm present, so we'll meet up you know once every three months or something we'll we'll all hang out but um you know we 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 don't like see each other that much and like i guess they when i'm overseas they send me photos of ted and and give me updates um that's the name of the kid uh mm. but yeah it's you know it's it's pretty chilled out and you know i think over time what we've learned is that the kid uh, the kid actually has a lot of say in this and we've mm -hmm. sort of got to respond to what the, the kid wants. This was something we distinctly forgot to incorporate into our plan, that there would yeah. be an extra human with uh, with their own subjectivity. Mm -hmm. So Ted actually fluctuates between interest and kind of complete disengagement from me. Um, and that's, you know, that's just something I'm getting used to, that these things go in waves. And, you know, well, I think I think ultimately when she's, by the time she's, a teenager or maybe older hopefully there'll be like more interest and we'll we'll have a close relationship but until that point i'm just kind of responding to what what mm. she wants and she knows obviously the as, yeah, as much as does. a five-year-old sort of is, is as tracking much as on a this stuff does. Yeah. exactly yeah she uh, i mean she understands that i'm a donor and i'm somehow important in you know creating her but anything more than that you, you know she's yeah i, I don't think she'd be able to explain it yet mm. so yeah we I, I mean i think that's maybe part of like she does understand it at some deep level and that's maybe part of the the push and pull between sort of interest and disengagement like sometimes i'm like a bit of an exotic figure for her and she's kind of really into it other other times it's um 
maybe it's a bit too much pressure for her, you know, like she doesn't like the idea that there's this like guy that she barely knows outside mm. her family, Ambit. Coming back to the podcast, what's next for the Dad to Me podcast? Anyone that you'd love to have on the show? So, and I'm not making a word of this up. I uh, picked up a particular CD from Salvos over the Christmas break. It was Kamal Sings Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was pumping it in my car, much to the annoyance of my partner and Dr. Tom and the times he was unfortunate enough to drive to the studio with me. But I was loving it. Uh, and I was joking out loud, it'd be amazing to get Kamal, who who is a father and who has some pretty mm. interesting kids of his own, some of who sort of tried to pursue the, the the Australian pop star career and never quite made it to the heights of their dad. Two weeks ago, I was walking through Chatswood Chase. Oh, baby. Who <laughs> is that figure coming my way in entertaining uh, a young lady on his arm? Nice mm. one. I passed him, double take, and I raced back. We have an email, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh. So I'm going to be pitching one of our dream guests. <laughs> Watch this space uh, for the king of easy listening. <laughs> uh, so that, that's a fantasy that may or may not be coming true. Uh, something that's definitely coming true is that Dr. Tom is heading off to Italy uh, very shortly to continue his Latin studies, which never end. But we are also then making the most of that. Dad to Me season two is called working title Dad to Me Diaspora. Mm. And we're going to be looking at the father-child relationships across continents between Australia and Italy and within particularly the Italo-Australian community, uh, of which there are so many fascinating names, uh, fascinating stories. Mm. And I think this story really needs an update. The last big sort of story in, in that sphere, in pop culture at least, was probably like Looking for Alla Brandy, yep. uh, which was a very big and popular movie 20 years ago. Yeah. And so we've got a couple of really exciting names uh, joining us to kind of co-host the pod, uh, one alongside me here in Australia and one alongside Dr. Tom in Italy. Mm. So we're, we're taking what we think works in the format and adding a bit of a Latin twist mm. <laughs> and I mean Latin Fantastic. in the like the loosest yeah, yeah. like not Ricky, not the Ricky yeah, Martin yeah. is not going to be joining romance us. Yeah. <laughs> well I wish you all the best for season two how do people find out more about you and the dad to me podcast yeah, well, uh, we are available through all the major platforms. If you check out Dad to Me, D A D T O M E, and on social media uh, at Instagram at Dad to Dot Me, D A D T O Dot M E. Someone already had the Dad to Me at Instagram. Yeah, yeah and it's one of those really annoying <laughs> ones where they, they, they've got it and they haven't posted anything. Like they've, uh, they've, they signed up for Instagram like 10 years ago. Yeah. Like, this like is a, a hilarious a typo of dead to me or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. Huh. Uh, guys, thanks very much for being on the Unforgiving 60 podcast. Been a lot of fun having you on and uh, hopefully uh, when we're next in the same orbit, we can talk Latin comedy philosophy. And happy to come to Italy if, if you're paying too, Dr. Tom. <laughs> Uh, yeah, do you know how much I get paid in the UK as an academic? <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, guys. Tim, Ben, this was this was really fun. We'll see you guys. See ya. Cheers. 
Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence on Unforgiving 60 and we want your insights and feedback. And indeed, if you know someone who has great insights to share with us that have a practical difference, then get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's unforgiving60.com. We love speaking to anyone who's been walking on the path less travelled and is generally living the life less ordinary. And if you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search at Unforgiving60, that's Unforgiving60. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube, you know what to do. See you next episode on The Unforgiving 60.